and you guys are having a tremendous impact, and I, I believe you're going to speak on shame today. Is that right? And so, man, we want to hear. We want to hear. So, Brian Greenwood, let's thank him for coming. All right. We on? Okay, before I get started, since you guys were at a free-to-be-me conference, I get a free-to-be-me. So I won't look at my wife as I tell you the story. I think Connie Witter, I guess, coined a phrase to stick it when you're feeling the objections from being free to be you, right? So... Just a little, my, my wife was endeavoring to share something very important, and when the Netherlands came up, something was, Netherlands is a great place. They also have great soccer in Netherlands. They have great coaches that come out of the Netherlands. So as that came up, my mind went, and I'm not supposed to talk about soccer when I'm speaking. It's that little sport with the ball, we don't really know what it does, and moms carry their kids around, they play out in the field for a while, and then they leave. But, but just I want to frame a perspective just for a moment is that there is about 2 billion Christians on the planet or, or, or you know, put themselves in that category. Then there's about 1.9 billion Muslims, about 900 million Hindus, about 600 million Buddhists on the planet. That's a lot of people. On any given Super Bowl Sunday last year, there's roughly about 110 million people watch the Super Bowl. And we say this is the great event of the year. But only half of them statistically watch for the commercials, so that kind of shrinks down the actual (laughs) viewing. But when Manchester United steps up and plays Liverpool on any given weekend... Over 1 billion people will tune in from around the world. There's over 4.7 billion people on the planet that follow soccer. There's more people that follow soccer than are involved in any one single organization of religion. It has its own government, its own currency, its own trade. It has its own industry all by itself. I can go into Burma and sit down with a 60 to 80-year-old grandmother and she'll tell me who's playing on Manchester United's team. I can, I can explain the gospel in clear terms of the concepts using a soccer field in any, relig- in any country around the world because they all culturally understand it. So anyway, that's why I talk about soccer. But Louis van Gaal took over Manchester United, so that was a real happy thing that the Netherlands provided for England. <clears throat> okay, now I'm done with that. Back to serious ministry stuff. Okay, the father. Um, I shared this morning about our ministry, and and we could kind of go for a long time on what we do, and I I tend to, it's hard articulating what our ministry does, because we don't want it encapsulated into just an idea. We're not a program, because programs change. The program may be different in five years. If ping pong reaches people, I'm going to figure out how to be good at ping pong. I mean, just whatever is the thing that connects to people. So the program really isn't important. It's, it's the motive of what we're doing. How do we introduce the father to a fatherless world? And we could spend hours on the statistics, but 
for us to really grab hold of the impact of the Father is I will venture to say in this room, everyone is either running from, running to, or living from the effects of a father. Do you know on Mother's Day, it is the number one day for phone calls to mom? Mother's Day. You want to know what the number one day for collect calls is? Father's Day. Just a thought. Fathering, because of what's gone on in our world, has created such a negative implication on an individual that is so critical to our life. And I'm not referring to natural fathers. So everything that I go forward here this evening, this afternoon, whatever, morning, we're still morning, whatever the time is, and by the way, how long do we go for? That you better be careful. Give me a nod when we should be wrapping up. So I'm not referring to natural fathers because they just are fathering out of what they believe a father is supposed to be. But every woman has been touched by a father. Did you know how we interact with life and how we measure failure and success was first introduced by your first interaction with your father? Psychologists have spent years on this subject of what a father does. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But here's where the big disconnect comes, is the world is actually asking very specifically for the gospel every day. They ask for it, and they understand two terms very clearly. And the problem is, sometimes we become so theological about how we communicate that we've lost touch when even though we're trying to share the thing that they need, there's no relevance to the connection. Like when I said soccer, all of you kind of gave me this day's look, except for the Netherlands people. <laughs> right? Am I? Okay, good. So, I, because if I were to say football, everybody knows what we're talking about there, right? Yeah. But when I say soccer, you're like, Huh? What a boring sport. You just kick a ball around. Do you guys realize how many intermissions you have when you watch football? You have more time to eat than you do watch the game. There is no break in soccer. It's like 45 minutes of just nonstop. Okay. I'm done, Val. Thank you. <clears throat> but this idea, we have concepts that are not relatable to the world, and we wonder why they're disconnected from us, and I think a lot of times it's not because of the message, it's because of a, once we say a word, a trigger takes place, right? We have triggers. I sat on an airplane with, with an absolute devout atheist, and how I knew this was, I was very tired, I was sitting down, I was minding my own business, I was getting ready to watch the newest movie that was on the plane, we had a long flight, and the man began to proceed to tell me of how much he disliked God and these born-againers. Now, I don't know how that conversation started because I didn't start the conversation. But I knew after two hours when he asked me, so what do you do? <laughs> I knew we were in trouble. The man was a professional Aikido instructor. It's a martial art. He travels around the nation and the world. And he's in trains. He's about 65 years old, been doing it for 25 years, very well known in his field. I, I've never heard of him, but... I guess it's kind of like soccer to you. But anyway, he'd been in his field, and he said, so what do you do? He says, well, we have a mentorship program in Thailand. Oh, really? So what's your core philosophy? I said, identity, strength, courage, and influence. Oh, very fascinating. So how'd you come to that? 
I said, well, you never really know who you are until you know your father. And that preceded another two-hour conversation. As he began telling me, he says, it's the funniest thing you said that. I have lived my life, I realize, at this moment, that my whole life has been geared of getting away from my dad. Now, I just said a simple thing. And it took that one little word to bring a complete understanding to his whole entire life. Now, isn't that simple? Complicated, but isn't it simple? So he came to this point. So he said, so what brought you to this point? I said, the word born again means that God, who is a spirit that could not relate to your natural humanity, sent his own son in the likeness of humanity to relate to everything you did so you can have an idea what your father actually looks like so you can now become like him. That's being born again. I don't think he's an atheist anymore. I don't know what happened after that conversation when he went home, but he had never heard the gospel before in his life. That's the gospel. See, we have made it. I remember when we were in Bible school. I won't tell you the Bible school we went to, but you would you know. I went to this Bible school. And we're supposed to tell people... We are getting to shame. This is building into this. I, we're supposed to tell people about the gospel. And I'll be honest with you, I finally started going through it going, there's nowhere it says what the gospel actually is. What is the key phrase that I do to sell this product? Right? What's the secret to the sale? I, I was the sales manager for seven years. There is little buzz phrases like, you don't want to buy the warranty? Oh, I see you like that TV. Yeah, we do. Not interested in the warranty. Oh, I can understand where you're coming from, but when you come back to me in a year and there's a problem and I want to help you, I'm just, my hands are going to be tied. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to be able to continue helping you as long as you have this product, but if you don't buy it, you're free not to do it. But So are you saying the, the, the TV's junk? I said, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's made by man, by hundreds of different places. Things go wrong. See, there's a buzz phrase that gets us all caught up in there, and I got you so fearful over something, now you're stuck with me. Isn't that what we've done with Christianity? Well, you know what? If you don't believe, you're going straight to hell. This is what's going to happen. You better believe. You better get your fire insurance. And by the way, if you get this one, you'll save 20% on your car insurance as well. I mean, we have all these little the buzz things, right, to keep us coming in. We have all this stuff. Then we say, well, that's really harsh. You can't tell people you're going to hell. Okay, you just won't go to heaven. <laughs> right? We go from you're cursed. Okay, we can't say that. You're just not going to be blessed. You're just not going to be blessed. Well, you're not cursed. Jesus took the curse. You just won't be blessed. If I'm in the water, I'm wet. If I'm out of the water, what am I? Okay, so can I be wet and dry at the same time? Well, you, you can try. Okay, but you're half wet and dry. But you're still wet technically, right? Because your wife ain't going to let you sit on the couch. So you're either wet or you're dry. Correct? So you're either blessed or you're cursed. You, there is no in-between on some of this stuff. Either you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. There's not like purgatory, right? We added those things. It's like this freeze-in-motion type action. We don't do that. So now we have this idea and we're wondering why people think we're crazy. Because we are. We believe terms we don't even understand. You ask the average Christian, are you saved? Oh yes, going to heaven, spirit-filled, hallelujah, kumbaya. Yeah. 
right? The whole thing. How do I get there? Well, you got to believe. What do I need to believe? Well, you need, you need, mm. you need to come to church. And you'll learn about what you need to believe. Well, I'm not going to church. You know, we have these ideas. We don't even know what we believe. We've been so conditioned into a thought process so we don't understand the terms. You can't go watch a movie. I'm going to wreck this for you. You watch a movie and don't find a father issue somewhere in the middle of that movie. Can't, you can't find it. The whole movie, Saving Mr. Mr. Banks, remember the movie that just came out about um, uh, Mary Poppins? What was the whole movie about? A father and the shame of a woman trying to resurrect her father. And Disney saw it because he went through the same thing. He says, I will save your Mr. Banks. That was her dad. You see, the world is craving for their identity. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they are. They don't know where they're going. So they're looking for something, but they're tired of the shame being put on them because they live in shame because that's what shame is. Disconnected, put aside from your father. That shame. Glory is completely received with all the benefit and love and care of your Father. There's only two options. You're either in shame or you're in glory. Shame has a perspective. We look When you're full of shame, you look at God's correct, correction as His rejection. And we're mad. When you're full of glory, you embrace it because you know it's making you better, not pushing you aside. It's not exposing your fault. It's revealing your strengths. So shame and rejection have these two concepts, and they run right dead into each other. And see, it's interesting that in the garden, um, the, okay, this is my, my thought, so it's kind of like an opinion, and it's kind of like everybody has one. It's like a nose. There's always a couple of holes in it, so I'm not setting a doctrine here, but I just want to, I want to give you a thought to help frame this. Adam and Eve had no concept of sin. They had no concept of shame. Now, understand this. No concept. If I were to ask you to tell me how a certain play works on a soccer field, most of you would give me this look. No concept. There's no frame of reference to even put it into. This is Adam and Eve. What did Satan have to do to get them to give up the glory that they already had. Now let me just say, the glory that Adam and Eve had is nothing compared to the glory that we now have. Because they didn't have God living in them. They were getting prepared to be born of both the natural and the spiritual realm. They were not. But even at that point, they were perfect in their natural realm with no shame. They, they didn't even consider what they're wearing. I've heard things about what they're wearing, they're wearing glory. They just didn't look at things the same way. They didn't have a perception. They're probably exactly the same with no perception of what we look at because they didn't have sin. So how does Lucifer come into an individual and swipe that out from under them and put the shame and the cloak and the blinders and change the vision of a people? Just simply convince them that God is holding out on you. Did he really say? He does not want you to be what you could be. Now just ponder that just for a moment. Is that not what Satan does to us? Is that not at the essence of everything that he does in our life is he gives you just a slight inch. You're not quite that. He's holding out on you. If God was really good, why wouldn't he do all this? 
Right? Now it's just grown into this big thing. Right, let's tell the devil to stick it on that one. (laughs) Connie, we're going to get a lot of mileage out of that one. That's awesome. So here's what's happened when you go to shame. So we have a, a man and a woman that, by the way, I just really want to close. We're not a men's ministry, okay? We are a ministry to life. And this, this message was birthed out of a woman we prayed for. And I'm, okay, I'm a little bit different on something else too. So I'm just going to throw it out at you. So just, I'm weird. So when people come up for prayer in, in Asia, we have all the time in the world. There's no, you know, the, the, the soccer games don't come on until 10 o'clock at night because of the time zones. So I have a complete three hours in an evening service to have extra time. So, we also don't have catchers either, so that poses a real interesting issue. You find out what's real and what's not real really pretty quick. So, when they come up for prayer, first, we pray for people whose heart, we ask them, what do you want? See, we assume what people want when we pray for them. You come up limping, oh, let me pray for that leg. Well, I really don't care about the leg. What's going on in me is this. Okay, go ahead and pray for the leg. Well, see, they prayed for me and nothing happened. We didn't want the leg healed. Something else was going on in your life. I mean, not that it's, but that's not what the issue is. We make it the issue, and therefore we have a hard time when we interact with people and we're ministering to them. So I don't want to do that. I want to figure out what is it that they want? What are they coming for? What is God wanting to answer in their life that will go away saying that God is my Father? What is that thing? So we will spend, if they'll come for prayer, I'll pray for my back because they see five other people getting their back prayed. So then all of a sudden the line starts and you try to be specific, but it doesn't matter. You got everything lined up. And so I'll just don't go anywhere. We're not done. So we did that. And this woman, this woman comes up and she goes, pray for my back. And so we did. And she goes, and I just like to ask, did the pain go away? Now, I don't know about you. I'm not saying you're not being in faith. That doesn't happen. I'm just figuring we're there. Why not figure out how it works? Just, just, you know, I like tearing things apart, saying, hey, if it's not working, why, let's just take some time and figure out what's going on. It's not a blame. See, condemnation says, okay, I'm going to pray. You go take it home now. It's your problem. It's not on me. <laughs> Quick, bam, 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 go. Oh, it, it, you just receive and do whatever you're going to do, right? <laughs> what, what kind of thing is that? Now, I get it. For, there's, there's speed time and there's this, this. I get all that stuff. I'm just saying. I just like to figure out what's going on. So I'll... My kids and my wife, they just sometimes, well, Valerie would stay, but the kids aren't really happy about it, so she takes them home. But I'll sit there, and I'll just say, what, what's going on? So this, this woman came up, and she back pain, she goes, the pain didn't leave. So I just stopped and looked at her, and I said, who said you had to carry all this? Now, ties are about as emotional as a charismatic Norwegian, okay? <laughs> there, there's always a smile, and that's it. There's no affection, no nothing. That's about all you're going to get out of that. A big hallelujah, unless they're watching Manchester United play. So, anyway, so this woman comes up, and she just starts crying. And all of a sudden, I could see into her. I said, why do you have to care for all the finances? Why do you have to care for all this? Who said you were even designed to be like that? That's not how you were made. I said, what's going on? And, and she didn't really talk. She just cried. I said, and so she all of a sudden just goes, oh. She goes, I, I feel so hot, like inside her stomach. And it's like, 
I feel so hot. What's going on? Now, she still has pain in her. I go, how's your back? She goes, it hurts. I go, let's pray for it. She did. Man, the pain just left. Because the receiving, we've spent a lifetime trying to receive from God when the receiving's not the problem. It's our perspective and the condemnation that have sat on us and the weights. And we don't even believe we deserve it even though we're asking for it and we want to be mad that he doesn't give it. Because if he doesn't give it, then I'm justified for being condemned of how I feel. Right? But all of a sudden when he kind of peels this off and I'm looking at this woman and I could see the shame and I just saw it just kind of come alive. She came back the next night. Because I have to tell you the story. My husband was put in prison. I have two children. There's no welfare system. There's, and it, because she doesn't have family, she's the outcast of society. So she's the outcast with two children in a society that that doesn't work very well. And she goes, God loves me. I mean, I wasn't preaching on that. God, he loves me. This Jesus, he, he loves me. I didn't tell her about Jesus. I didn't, I didn't pray the prayer of if you confess your sins, he'll be faithful and just forgive us and cleanse you all righteous. I didn't pray that you'd be born again. She got so radically born again. She wasn't saved. She was an animist. And she discovered the love of God and she goes, my back was broken. I had fallen caring for the kids and my back was broken. And God healed. But he loves me. Like, she, that was okay. That's the afterthought. Great. He loves me. Her perspective of everything changed. And when the condemnation and the love starts going, that's why healing is, is real. We've made it such the emphasis of, if he'll heal me, he loves me. We've almost made it the measurement of love. And it's not. It's just the byproduct of how we, we, he, we receive. Then everything's a receptive. Just receptive. But shame is the cloud that the enemy has used to wrap around our head to tell us you're not it. So here's what psychologists say. So let me, let me throw this out at you first. Our view of the father, so now, now this is a psychologist dealing with natural fathers to children. By the way, it was Sigmund Freud, an atheist, who said this, the most critical thing to a child is a father. I can share stories with you that will curl the back of your hair, the hair on your head when we deal with father-son issues. Father-son issue, we get Joseph Stalin. Father-son issues, we get an Adolf Hitler. Father-son issues, we get a Joseph. Father-son issues. How about father-daughter issues or someone that stood in with Mordecai and Esther? I mean, we have great stories and horrible stories. This relationship piece is the confidence builder of who we are. So let me give you three defunct issues of, from a psychologist of just dealing with natural kids. But think about this in terms of our relationship to God, if you've thought of him this way. If he is non-existent, we are at a loss and our life will become a search. If he is angry, we, have, we live intimidated and discouraged. If he is passive, we grow up wondering how to resolve, understand, and communicate our inner thoughts and feelings. The learned behaviors of ignoring, discounting, or avoiding emotions and feelings breed us in the long-term sense of neglect in our lives. Shame. You see, we have made God either angry, non-existent, or passive. Well, we just don't know what God's going to do today. We're just going to keep praying and believing. Now, I'm kind of being a little, I apologize. I don't mean to be real cynical on that. But I'm just telling you, if I only hear God 50% of the time, I might as well never hear him. Because I don't know which one is him talking. 
I'm just as confused. I would rather either not hear them or hear them 100%. How do I hear them 100%? Well, when my child first heard me talk, did he understand every word that I said? No, he understood me. And we've made God distant. And we made God not relatable. And because we can't relate, touch, and feel Him, we've started pushing Him away. And so we try to go through this random philosophy. Even when we say we love Jesus, sometimes we don't even know what that's really connecting to. What does that mean? What if I told you I look just like Him? Now, I know you're going to agree with me because you've been told that, but would you just, do you have the confidence to say that I'm God? What are you saying, I'm God? If you say you're, you're like Jesus, you're saying you're God. Now, that doesn't compute very well, does it? You'd almost think that I'm blasphemous, wouldn't you? We're going to get to that one. Just ponder that for a moment. So shame drives two big tapes. This is psychologists. That you're never good enough. And if you can talk yourself out of that one, the next one is, who do you think you are? That's shame. Those are voices from shame. Shame, when it says that the enemy's only power is to blind your eyes, shame means to cover. So when he throws shame over you, you can't see what you are. You can't see where you're going. You can't even think straight. Shame. Anybody been in that moment where things aren't going very well and all of a sudden the voice start talking and you feel like you're in a hole and you have no concept of where that's ever going to get out? Where are you going to get out of that? Now, shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior and they're not the same thing. If you stole something, you're going to feel guilty, I hope. You know what I'm saying? Like, ah, I shouldn't have taken that. I better go take that back. See, guilt kind of brings you... It doesn't mean you have to kill yourself over it. It just means you're still guilty, right? You kind of want to get it right. There's a sense of, I did wrong, let me go get it right. You, you, mouth, you, you, you tell too many soccer stories in speaking. I'll have to go apologize later. It, it, it's not really guilt, but just for the sake of relationship. But guilt does that, okay? Shame is something completely different. It says that I am bad. I, my, my core is bad at the birth. But isn't that what a fallen nature is? Isn't that what our old nature... See, we don't renew a split nature. We do not split personalities. But we have conduct from the old nature when we're born again. And that old conduct wants to influence our thoughts that we're still no good. I am bad. Maybe I should do this. That's what religion does. And then it gets you in that exercise. And pretty soon, you're medicating yourself through religion. Yeah. And in some sense, religion... Karl Marx, okay, I'm listen, listen to me clearly. He's wrong, but his concept that religion was the opiate of the masses had some sense of relevance to it. Because you just got caught in emotion and you quit thinking about things. All right? I'm only quoting that because I remember him saying that, but I'm not a... Okay. Strike that from the record. I'm very much not that. So for men... So for shame, women is the web, now this is just coming from a psychologist, is, a, is for women is the web of unobtainable, conflicting, competing expectations about who they're supposed to be. Is this true? Yes. Is this what happened to Eve when the curse came? Yes. When shame was put over them of how they would look at life now? Isn't that what she said? That your childbearing would be painful, that you would strive for the position of your husband? Correct? 
What role am I? What do I have to do now? I, you become the caretaker of everything. I, it's in my control. That's shame. For men, it's not that. It's to not be perceived as weak or unprofitable. I mean, you tell a man, at least say, I work hard. I work hard. We don't always work smart, but we work hard. <laughs> right? Because that's our, we work hard. I work six, I work six jobs. See, but, but we don't want to know that we can't provide something because we were, it was birthed in us through the grace of God that we were a provider. Those things were important in the grace of God. But now we're forced to get our life from dirt versus what was provided in the garden. Genesis, so this is out in Genesis 3. So shame can be seen as being separated from our source of life, which is what a father is, a source of life, by an inner perception from our perceived place in this world. In other words, when we feel shamed, we look at everything from the bottom looking up. When we are in glory, we're looking everything from the top looking down. Same problem has a whole different outcome. Has a whole different benefit. How is optimist optimist? I mean, just, I mean, how are you going to be so positive about things? Well, they look at things differently. Now, sometimes, I mean, just in a real positive person, they just look at things differently. A, a successful businessman will look at problems as an opportunity to solve and create a profit off of them. They see them as opportunity, because if you can't solve it, then I can, and I can make money on it. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. That's, that's, what, that's what, how that creates it. But when you feel less that everything's a problem, and we're taught, and we're always always striving for, for things to get better. Oh, if the outside change. See, shame makes it where your inside is broken, but you want to protect it so much, it's always the outside. Yeah. So then we're driven by the outside. We're measured by the outside. We're looked upon by the outside. We take the conformity from the outside because the shame is driving that because it hurts so bad, we don't want to acknowledge, I'm not anything. Yeah. But glory does something altogether different. Glory says the outside is not my problem. When I know what I am, you can plant me anywhere. And something's going to change. Because now I'm the influencer versus the influenced. It's completely different. That's your inheritance. So shame is is a defective inner feeling that is not based on any type of behavior. Now listen closely to this. It's not based on behavior. And I will tell you, the things that make you feel guilty were initially stirred by shame to begin with. That's how it kind of all ties together. You wouldn't have gotten and stole the thing if you weren't feeling incompetent that God would provide for you, so you wouldn't have taken the thing to begin with. Right? So, so shame stirs that, but there is a difference between the two. So shame is emotionally... Okay, hold on. It is, it is not based on any type of behavior, event, reality, or action. Shame is a free-floating emotion that can at any moment overtake its victim. Have you ever felt that? Even in our renewed minds, loving Jesus, happy days, Monday morning hits, and all the messages start coming in, and it's not looking good for the day. And one of them hits something about you that's like your Achilles heel and says, I'm no good. I'm just no good. And now you start reacting to your family, your environment, and you attract the people that are also making you not feel good. And all of a sudden, you have this world that starts being formed by Satan just coming in. 
And that is on a very true note. We have to learn to identify that voice and tell it to stick it. Because it is killing who we are. That, that is, it, it is, it is critical. Because it's not the Father. Psychologists consider shame to be the emotional cancer. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know where it comes from. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know what the problem is, except they know one thing. It originates at a parent-child relationship. Now, isn't that interesting that the thing that is killing our world originated in the relationship between a father and specifically the father, a father and a child? Now we can understand Malachi that unless the hearts of the father are turned to the child and the child to the father, a curse will come on this earth. And then in John, Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist comes and says, I've turned the heart of the father to the child. The disobedience was formed because of the relationship of the father's view of the child. And when we're disconnected and we're feeling incomplete, shame comes in. And then it says we become enemies of God in our own minds. God never, ever, ever abandoned us, even in the garden. Ever. He talked to Cain. He walked with them. His presence was with them. They just were protected from eating of the tree of life because redemption was on its way. We've made it that God just abandoned and sin separated and did this whole thing. Sin, sin influenced shame and our eyes begin to change. We thought ourselves as animals. Not of the same kind anymore. You don't feel like you're a part of the family. You're not equal. Now this becomes critical because I want to rock your thinking and then let Pastor Greg dig you out of it later. No, I'm not going to do that to you. You've had an, I'm just kidding. He's already had enough journey. I'm not going to do that to you. I just want to read the scripture. I have no fear of theories, philosophies, or anything like that. We're just going to stay in the Bible. I'm just kidding, Greg. He's like, oh, please don't do No, we're on the same page here. So here's four things that shame gives us. Here's what it gives us. Lack of focus. The inability to concentrate or focus on a task, project, or plan. Lack of focus is, uh, concentrating is often related to how we feel about ourselves, our career, and our potential. When we can't focus, it's because of how we're thinking about ourselves. When God is trying to expand something in you and you can't see what he's trying to tell you, it's because shame has been over your heart. Or the influence of it. And you're not allowing who you really are to come out. See, I can say who you are because once you're born again, it's already in there. To a fallen person, this makes sense. I can say father and shame, and the world understands it 100%, crystal clear. They understand those two concepts, and the gospel is here to answer those two concepts. Religion cannot answer those two concepts, because religion demands I put you under the law to keep you under my influence. I have to have you as slaves, or religion doesn't work. Motivation. We lose motivation, the fuel of our focus, the drive that moves us towards our focus. Without motivation, we do not have inner energy to move our lives forward. Is this true? You think about things you're trying to believe for, and when Satan came in and tried to influence you again that you were not what he said he was, you just abandoned the whole thing and went back to what you were doing before. Emotional immaturity. 
Emotional immaturity is most, we see this most in addictive behaviors. The average age mentally of an addict is 15 years old. The mental, they could be 50 years old, but the average age of an addict, of whatever, you're automatically thinking, all the drugs, I'm telling whatever you've used to heal and soothe that area of your heart, emotionally, about 15 years old. Now here's why this is important. All addictive behaviors are driven by the emotional inability to tolerate any degree of frustration or distress. What character teaches someone and pulls them out into the water where your natural resources can't take and he pulls you out there? A father. A father's not going to let you fail, but he's trying to teach you the emotional stability to handle things that are beyond what you can comprehend. That's a father. We want him to come into the boat and make it all safe right there. And he's saying, no, I'm going to take you to the place, not only will you be safe, but you'll be able to help other people because you'll be stable. It's emotional stability. And sometimes we've made Christianity a way to get out of pain. How about getting, rather than getting out of pain, how about learning how to conquer the pain and then taking that pain back to whatever it came at you? I mean, that's what we want, right? That's what I want. So this emotional block keeps a person locked into adolescent thinking and overreacting to life's challenges. They simply can't handle or process the ups and downs of life, work, or relationships. Father. The father comes in. And the father has a way of pulling you over here. And when your kids say, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that, it'll be okay. I remember I took my son David. He did not want to go play soccer. And so we went out on the, this one wasn't a soccer story. It just happened to be. So we, we go out and we go out in the field. And he didn't want to go, he didn't want to go, he didn't want to go. Because all he's seen is me coaching high school boys. So his perception, I didn't realize it then, but until afterward, his perception was everybody's going to be bigger. Then he saw all the kids his height. Well... If I have to go, I will. He said, well, I appreciate your nobility in doing this, so if you would bestow that upon me, you could go play. Okay, but just because you want me to. Okay, David. Then afterwards, he's running his crazy. Dad, we had so much fun. We did all this. What did I do? I took him from something I knew would be beneficial to him that he would love, but I had to walk him through the emotional instability of wanting to get there. That's life. Now you're free. You can do more things. You, you can grow. You can expand. Your, the, your perceptions are different. The fourth thing is fear of failure. What you learned about failing and succeeding in life started with you and your father. Ponder that for a moment. And a lot of it in how we handle our relationship with God and how he influences our heart is 100% based on that right there. Because we don't think he's going to answer us, or he's going to be quiet, or there's going to be the dark times, and then there's going to be um, those times where he puts a vision in your heart, and you don't hear from him for 40 years, and then he shows up with it. <laughs> I don't know about you, but my kids aren't... God says, become a child. To enter the kingdom of God, you need to become like a child. I don't know a child that will buy into that. <laughs> a child that's going to buy into that. They're really thinking about right now. We've learned to... Di- Thank you, Dave. That was so. He shared something great. But we've learned to shove that aside 
because of our own pain of that time that we want to go from here to here. Just get me the results. Money will solve this problem. This thing will solve this problem. The outside will solve this problem. If I could just get this, then everything will be normal. And we all know it's not true, yet we shame drives that whole imagery. And just when you think you're settled, a nice marketing campaign will remind you of how incompetent you are because almost every product is sold sold based on the idea you don't have something. Have you ever had a medical thing say, gosh, you already got everything you need. I don't know if you'll even need to come to our shop today. But if you want to, we're having free candy. Maybe we can't sell you anything, but we'd love to say hi. You've never heard that one. No, you have the one little thing that says, this will solve your greatest fear. And then there's the list of all the things that it does to you while you take that one thing. The disclaimer. We skip the disclaimer. Final, final quote from the psychologist. Nothing apparently defends against the internal ravages of shame more than the security gained from parental love, especially the sort of sensitive love that sees and appreciates the child for what he or she is and is respectful of the child's feelings, differences, and peculiarities. Nothing seems to cut, make shame cut more deeply than the lack of that kind of love. If God just loves you but throws the love sheet over the top of you because he just loves you in the name of Jesus and all he sees is Jesus when he throws the sheet over because he doesn't have to look at you. There's really no love in that. When he's loving me because I have potential. You know, a nuclear reactor has potential to be a bomb. It's never going to become one, but it has potential to be one. I don't want potential. I want you to see what I actually am. Actually, the word potential means it's fully ready to be released. We've made it like, well, I can see some potential. If I do some work on them, then we can shape them into something, and maybe, maybe we can get something out of them. God doesn't do us. He calls what you are from the very beginning, knowing what he says about you will drive what you actually are. And he pulls that out. And if your father never said that to you, he sent a prophet by the name of Samuel to a young boy and says, you're going to be king even though your family's rejected you. And that boy went on to go be king. And he began accepting what those words were and he began accepting that God wanted to be your father all along. The best example in the Bible of a father that destroyed shame was Joseph. Joseph had a dream. He had his plans. He had his way he was going to make life. He prepared for this young bride Mary and now she's pregnant. You just ponder that for a moment. How am I going to explain that? I don't care if you even believe what it is. I want to know how you're going to explain that one to the family. At Christmas, Thanksgiving. Well, she's pregnant. It's not mine, but it was God's. Mm -hmm. So I decided to marry her because an angel came to me and told me that God impregnated her. Uh Uh-huh. In a culture where family and name and lineage meant everything. Talk about living as an outcast. You want to know if Jesus felt shame before? He grew up in the midst of shame. He was born in a manger. It's not pretty like the ones on the the Christmas cards. I don't know if it was a starry night and all the nice cool breeze. Whatever breeze was going on in the manger, it wasn't cool. It was a manger. Listen, he grew up in the lowest point. That's why in Han- when Hannah prayed over 2 Samuel, I'll raise the, 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 
from the dust and and the, the weak and the broken from the dung heap. I'll raise them up and I'll sit them among princes and I'll make them kings. That was a picture of David and it was a picture of Jesus. We can relate to Jesus. Here's my point. The thing that kills shame is when you could finally see your father as who he is and you can reflect him. If you can't be like your father, he is not your father. That's what we idolize. That's what we worship. That's my dad. Hey, that's my dad. Hey, that's my dad. That's what changes our life. And the thing that I've seen is that God becomes distant over here and he's, he is sovereign. He's all those things. He's majesty, but he's the one who chose to say the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. That means he models that to us and he didn't come to this earth to be served, but to serve. That means he chose to give his blessing over to me because he thought I was worthy enough to be raised up even higher than he was, yet I'm not, and the humility in that is just absolutely overwhelming. You will not get a prideful person that truly understands what they are. They're the most humble people because they know what they are. We become arrogant when we're trying to be something that we're not. We become proud in those moments. Let me read this to you. John G. Lake said this, Do you know that it is only as your mind settles back into the humiliation, that's shame, and suffering and weakness and the fear and the doubting and the dispensation that is past? Are you part of that dispensation when you're born again? No. That's gone. It is when we fall back into that dispensation that you grow weak, sickly, and sinful. But as your soul looks forward and possesses in the present the glorious victory that Jesus acquired and exhibits and enjoys, does it raise, rise out of its sorrows, out of its sin, into the glorious triumph of the children of God? He changed Africa. The man discovered something about himself, one of the most humble men, yet so confident. It would scare you. The things that he would do and say, but the humility in the man was unbelievable. And I, I told you about when we... I'm not going to go there. Romans 1.21, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that He's the all-supreme being, which He is. But when you glorify someone, it's like a son glorifying their father. See, you can glorify Him because you're like them. They're the greatest of your kind, but you're of that kind. That's why we glorify Him. Why do we worship animals? Why do we make carved images of lower beings? Because that's how we think we are, and that's the best of that being. Listen to this. It says in, um, so in Romans 1.21, because they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile. Incapable of, futile means incapable of producing any useful result, pointless, in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like a corruptible man. See, he takes our corruptible man and makes us into the image of him. We're trying to take him and make him into the image of a corruptible man. Or we keep him distant where we can't relate to him altogether. And we become loved dogs, his little pets. We're not his pets. Satan came into a serpent. God didn't come into a pig or an animal. 
You're not a lower being. You're of His kind. So He can share and influence His heart. And He knows how you feel. And He came down because He didn't want you just a natural man, but He wanted you a heavenly man as well. And He wanted to sink the two worlds together in you and bring you to a place of who you actually are. But God has chosen the weak things. This is in 1 Corinthians 1.26. But God has chosen the weak things to put in the world to put the shame... God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the wise. He didn't come and found the, find the most incompetent. We've looked at that from still a natural source. What is foolish is people who live by the flesh. He chose those that did not live by the flesh, that had a heart for him and he made them into great people versus those that mastered the systems of this world to rise up. That's a little bit different. Because they say, well, if I'm smart then, I mean, I guess I can't be smart because he can't use me because I'm, I'm smart. <laughs> it's not what he's saying. The weak things are those that have, put, have no longer put their trust in the systems of man. But those that chose to put their trust in God, he took those and he made them a spectacle. So he could put to shame the world. See, you're either in glory or into shame, so he's going to shame the world. By showing how glorified you are because you accepted Him. And it will draw people in. They don't know you because you're speaking a lot. They know you because of what they see the Father in you. Because for the first time, just like Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I didn't say you've seen the Savior. You've seen the Father. Because I look just like Him. He, He shows me things. See, a father shows his son what to do. He shows his child what to do. And if he doesn't show you what to do, he's not a good father. That means when shame comes off, we could be saying, God, you're talking to me all the time. What's my answer to this problem? And you know it says? We always like the sanctification, the holiness that he gives, but you know the first thing he gives? Wisdom. Wisdom means you can see things the way he sees them. Isn't that awesome? I can look at my problem and tell it what it's going to do, and I can see where the answer is. Jesus never panicked. And neither should you, because he spent a a gospel teaching you how to think. We've identified with the characters that were broken. But he's saying, I want you to identify with me as I'm looking at those characters. That's who I am. I called you to be a disciple with me, and that means I want to show you exactly what I see, exactly what I feel. I want you to feel what I feel when I look at that person. And he elevates you. Our greatest dishonor to him was not accepting what he thinks of us. And now listen to this. I'm going to close with this here. John 10:33. The Jews answered him, saying, "For good work we do not stone you, because Jesus made the, the dumb mistake of saying that he was, his father was God." The Jews answered him saying, "For good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man." Make yourself God. Now, you guys are all understanding. I'm not above God, and I'm not a Savior. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. God is still sovereign. He is still the Creator. He chose just to make me a part of Him. Okay? You guys understand that? So when I'm saying this, I'm not exalting myself. I'm just acknowledging what He's saying about me. So verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? Oh, this will will twist some of your guys' minds here. In your law, I said you are gods. 
I'm just reading the Bible. It's quoted twice, right? Two or, three, two or more witnesses. He says it in Psalms. You're, you are gods because you're children of the Most High. The others were not. They were mere men. The moment you become children of the Most High, you become of a different class. A new creation, a new species of being that didn't exist before. Something that this world has been longing for and the whole earth has been groaning, waiting for this time. That's what he's been waiting for. He says, if he called them gods to who the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. This is Jesus' words. It didn't read. (laughs) Do you say of him who the father sanctified? Has anybody been sanctified when they've been born again? Of who the father sanctified and sent into this world, you are blasphemy because I said I'm the son of God. But you have to understand the implications of what that means to be the Son of God. It means you're no longer shame based of a lower class that you're no longer good. You're fully complete, fully empowered with all the authority, with all of the understanding, with all of the wisdom. But, you know, we grow in it. You know, Jesus didn't raise the dead in his first miracle. Do you know he had to actually grow in the miracles? He had to grow in what his life would produce. He grew in those things. But his journey was because, if you see me, you've seen the Father. I only do what I see the Father do. Well, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. The journey was fun. He was at rest. Why? Because the end had to be fulfilled because he was doing what the Father told him to do and now he could just live. Now we could go back to a child and enjoy the daily story. No more shame. Free from all of that. Amen? Are we done? I mean, I can keep going, but let me just leave this one thing here. 1 Corinthians 15.34 says this, Awake, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. But I speak this to your shame. Now let me just say what that word means. He wasn't shaming you. He was speaking to the shame that keeps telling you that you're not this thing. You're sinning only because you don't understand you're righteous. Because once you're righteous, you don't have to do those things because you won't want to because that's not your nature. And you won't be looking at it the same way. And you'll be be fully fulfilled. Hebrews 2.11 For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all one. For which reason he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call you a brother. Now, if he wanted you to make you of the same class that he is, I think he has the right to. Is he not sovereign? Is he not the creator? He's choosing to make you into a different position. Shame, the enemy's only tactic against you to blind your eyes is to put that over your head to say you're not. And if you stay there, you become like Cain, who killed Abel. Because Abel understood who he was. And Cain did not. And he hated Abel for it. Because he couldn't work enough to get rid of the shame. Because he labored in the field. He tried to do the curse. He tried to get the earth to produce for him. And for him to give something to God. And Abel just goes and takes a calf blood. And he's got to go trade his hard work for this thing that Abel didn't even produce. Abel didn't make the baby come out. He just took it. Now, this might help. Now, let me read you a scripture to close you off. B. 
Because if we look at things that we need before we can do what God's put in our heart to do, we'll always be subject to slavery. Always. And slavery is shame. The most core of shame, because you degrade a human being into something lower to make it a servant of you. And we were never slaves of God. Now, when Paul says, I'm a bondservant, there's a whole different concept that's being written about that. But a slave is degraded. You have to call it a different name because you can't even acknowledge that it's a human because it's so against our whole ingrained nature to do that. So that's why there's new names came, and that's why you lower them, and you, you constantly have to shove a slave down because once they recognize, wait a second, there's something wrong here, you got a rebellion. And you don't want the rebellion, so you keep them stripped to nothing. That's slavery. So then we've looked, well, if I have this, then I could get out of this. If this would just happen, I could get out of this. Well, God, I could pursue my dream. I shared with Pastor Greg the other night. I'm probably talking too much, but he's a phenomenal listener. So I was telling him, he at least, he at least acts like he cares what you're saying. He, just, he gives you that, that's good, that's good, that's good. And he just kind of nods you to the door as you go. It's wonderful. When it comes to money, how many know we need money to do things in this world? We need it. But if we dictate our decisions by what's in your checkbook, I'm telling you, you're having God tell Baal to give you an answer so God can do something on your behalf. Idolatry was a system of marketplace. Because that's where the markets took place. And if you didn't worship and function in that way, you couldn't buy or sell and have the benefit of what that community would provide. They're interlocked. And there's only two gods in this world, and that's mammon and God. Not even Satan. Mammon and God. There's a system of this world. There's a system of heaven. And they're in clash with each other. Now, God has a way of getting all sorts of things to you. So there's not a problem there. And there's not a problem with having it. That's not an issue. The issue is none of those things. The issue is that if that thing is telling you what you can do, you're telling God that he's not bigger than that. And God wants that broken because he can never have your full heart if you can't trust him when he says to go do something. Because it will override that and probably produce a whole lot more than you ever thought you could do if you just got it before you go do it. So now listen to that in light of this. Let your character or moral, this is Hebrews 13, 36, or excuse me, Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Let your character or moral disposition be free from the love of money. Disposition, I've got to have that or I can't go do something. Including greed, avarice, don't know what that is. This is the amplified version, so it's a little loud. Lust and craving for earthly possessions. And be satisfied with your present circumstances in with what you have. Oh, I've heard that so many times. I'm like, oh, there's no hope in that. That don't feel good. Because if you don't know the Father, that kind of leaves you with, okay, just don't want anything. I'm going to be a Buddhist. <laughs> Who still have the Walkmans and they're buying all this stuff. I'm glad you didn't have any money. Well, they're flying first class. They get all sorts of different things. But anyway. For he, God himself, has said, I will not. Look what he's trying to get you to switch. I will not. That will, I will not fail you in any way, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. That is a father. That's what a father does. 
I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not. I will not. I will not in any degree. Look how the emphasis is there. That word makes it so emphatic. Like, I want you to get this because you're something different. You're not like that. You're like this. I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake, nor let down or relax my hold on you. Assuredly not. So we can take comfort, taking comfort in the Father's words over me. I'm not taking comfort that I could just now. Have, I'm just going to learn to go without. The going without or having out. That's not the relevant story. The relevant story is who's the source in the situation? The Father. And he says, so we take comfort and are encouraged and confidently and boldly say, when we know who we are, how do we walk? When my father's with me, I know who I am because I look just like my dad. And if it's good for my dad, it's good for me. I will, the Lord is my, so we can take comfort in our courage and confidently and boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be seized with alarm. I will not fear or dread or be terrified. What can man do to me? All those voices can just stick it. <laughs> Amen. You know, the Holy Spirit's main role, you can come up here, Greg. The Holy Spirit's main role wasn't so you can speak in tongues. In case you were confused on that. By speaking tongues. The Holy Spirit's main role wasn't so you can prophesy. You know, I prophesied. What was that? To show you the Father. I won't leave you orphaned. I'm going to send you the helper to reveal who you are in your Father. The rest is just the bonus. Amen? Amen. Wow. All right, you can sit down. That was 